How you doing, folks? Welcome back to The Daily Marketer. Season two, we're doing something a little different. We're bringing on people who are founders or integral players in the growth of a company, and we're listening to their growth journey. We also are bringing on people who are subject matter experts in subsectors of marketing. Think affiliate, search engine optimization, programmatic job ads, paid acquisition, and we furrow in their brain like a little bug, get in their ear, dive really deep and we suck out that knowledge for you so you can consider those tactics, channels, and approaches for the growth of your company because more than likely they're going to be useful for you. Our guest for today is one of those people, John Frisch. Who is John Frisch? John is a marketer, blogger, author, storyteller, and diehard Wisconsinite who is a master brand builder and creative. Prior to growing several reputable Northwest brands, he worked in newspapers, specifically Capital Newspapers and Madison.com as their head of marketing, growing their digital customer base from zero to 10 million as the internet started to take shape from 1997 to 2008. After working in the newspaper industry, he shifted into internet marketing and established the GameHouse, Corbis, and Responses brands through engaging customer retention marketing, creative solutions, and some kick-ass copy. Recent roles placed him as the VP of marketing for Atavis, don't kill me for saying that wrong, the professional rugby brand Assurance, a, an insurance tech company acquired by Prudential for $2.5 billion which is actually one of the largest acquisitions in recent financial services history. And finally, Think Again Marketing, uh, John's own marketing consulting brand. John Frisch studied political science and advertising at the University of Wisconsin and originally wanted to work in politics doing marketing. This conversation was a blast. John has actually become a recent mentor to me and a lifelong friend making this a really comfortable conversation to tap into. Uh, you know, we got to explore his marketing thesis that he brought to newspapers, a, you know, something some would argue is a dying and slow-moving medium, uh, to transitioning to the cutting edge of the internet, uh, and then really essentially the importance of brand building before any sort of direct marketing. If you want to build something perennial, uh, you should really listen to this conversation. I'm going to be honest with you. This episode is particularly valuable for one kind of person. I'd say anyone who wants to get an understanding of brand marketing and storytelling. Modern day marketers are often obsessed with performance marketing. I'll, you know, I'm guilty of this, uh, but this isn't it. This isn't the only thing. Uh, there's a whole nother side, dark side of the moon that isn't explored or maybe is neglected of lately, and that is brand marketing. Uh, this is the precursor to, honestly, to direct marketing because if someone doesn't know, trust, or like your brand, then they're inevitably going to, you know, you're going to have an uphill battle to acquire them as a dedicated, diehard customer. 
I also want to thank you for listening to the show. Uh, we are growing our own listener base. So uh, if you do end up liking the show, please listen to the end and uh, please consider subscribing. Uh, we are actually also doing a raffle for a $50 Amazon gift card if you do hit subscribe, which we'll announce the winner of every other week. I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Friesch. Enjoy. Hey, John. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, so I thought I'd start off this episode with you. If you could tell me about the story about David Byron and driving from Madison to Minneapolis to see to see David on a on a work night. David Byrne. David Byrne. I'm sorry. On the Talking Heads. If you could give us some background on who David Byrne is too. Absolutely. And, uh, cool. That'd be that'd be great. Uh David Byrne wrote a book called How Music Works. I'm, I'm actually not starting chronologically at all. This is not linear. Um, but which is a fantastic book on the history of music. It's not just about the industry, but it's also about, it's also about pitch and tone and how songs are written and how songs are marketed and how they're recorded and how music was done back in the old days, like classical old days, the real ones, and then uh, and how it's done now. It's an excellent book. So he's, you know, he's just as much of an artist as he is a musician. And in fact, he's got a show on Broadway right now based mm. on his latest album, American Utopia, which is a fantastic show. But he started with Talking Heads. Their first album came out in 77. So they've been doing this for a while. Uh, I think they put out like eight albums. And then he went solo after that. And uh, he came to Minneapolis. Actually, the show was, if I recall, the show was postponed because of... Uh, September 11th, 2001 or 2000. Yeah. So everything was kind of pushed back. So he came to Minneapolis, played at First Avenue and I had tickets. So I drove up and I got there and found out that his uh, tour bus was late coming from the last venue he played. And how far is is Madison to Minneapolis? Four hours. Four hours. Well, I think four hours for normal people. I think I drove it in like three hours, 15 or something, but. And it was a Tuesday. Uh, yeah, it was a day like any other day. Yeah. And, uh, so I got there and they were just unloading the bus and the guy told me that they were running late and that it would all be about three hours late. And instead of going doors opening at six, going opening band at seven, him going on at eight 30, it was going to be like opening band at 10 30, him going on at like 11 or 11 30, he'd be done at one or two. I had to go to work the next day, so then I would be, um, <clears throat> I would have gotten home at like four. So um, I'm fairly persistent, and I don't really give up pretty much ever. Um, so I walked around the venue talking to different people, kind of getting to know people, asking them what they do and asking about that, and then telling them my story. I drove four hours to see this show. It's running late. I can't make it back in, at four o'clock because I'd have to wake up right away and go to work. And finally, someone, uh, I talked to someone with the tour company, and they said, well, you can come in um, if you just stand over here and because he's, you know, and watch the sound check. And so this huge open venue, I'm the only person in there. I'm looking kind of sheepish because I, I have to stand out because I'm the only one in there who's watching, aside from David Byrne and his band. And the cool thing about that tour was, and this was the like humans do tour. Um, for that album that came out. And the cool thing about that tour is he backed that that album with eight 
kind of symphony orchestra roles like cello Ooh. and that whatnot. And so when he was touring, instead of having people that play with him that for expense purposes, he was basically getting renting session renting musicians from the local orchestras for wherever he was. So people mm. from the Minneapolis, I, I don't know what they're called, but I'm assuming Minneapolis Orchestra came. And so what he would do is he would actually, instead of doing a traditional sound check where they play a couple songs, he had to play the whole show with them to show them how he, how the songs went and how he wanted every song to be. So I got to see the whole show and the behind the scenes of him stopping in mid songs to instruct on how the music mm. should be or how he wants something played or if he wants an emphasis put on something. Um, and, you know, they're all professional, like really, really good musicians. So they can all cite, they were reading, you know, they'd read the music and they knew what they were generally doing, but it was really interesting to see what was important to him in the performing of the music. And I got to stay for all this and I was the only one in there saw the whole thing, left at 10, got home by one o'clock. And it was, it had to be one of the best concerts I've ever seen. Uh, mostly because it was alone and I got to see the behind the scenes. And I'm, I'm really, music is an absolute passion of mine. And I'm very interested in the, I'm very interested in the, the, the mechanisms behind it, the machinations that go on with it, the why, the how, the playing, the technical side of it. So going to concerts is usually a horrible experience for me because of all the people who are there to drink or were brought by a friend and don't know the music or are there to hear the one hit song because those people drive me nuts because they talk through the whole thing and they don't really see or appreciate what's happening on the stage. It was, it was like, the, it had actually, it had to be the, I don't know if it was the best concert I've seen, but it was the best concert experience I've had. That's so cool. Yeah. So, so you got to see the whole show. How long was the sound check? Uh, the whole thing was like two hours. Oh God. That's so incredible. It's like you had your own incredible. private show. Right. And it was all just because, you know, a lot of people would have turned around disappointed or would have stuck it out and stayed. And it, I don't know. I just think you got to be creative and you got to decide what you want to do and then figure out a way to get it done. Yeah. Cause I think just as far as worldview goes, I think people, people want to help I believe that. I believe people want to help other people. I think they like helping other people. I think they feel good when they help. Um, and so you just had to find the person who could see the opportunity to do something interesting or different and, and be the person that, yeah, I'm so cool. I let that guy in. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wrote down your personality test qualities that you had on your website. Uh, persistence and job completion was the very first one, I think, purely persistence in life yes. is is something that is definitely you. And then the one I'm looking at right now, creative and unconventional. I think that that story expresses that really well. Uh, and then anticipate and solve problems. I mean, you being able to just, just ask a question of them to watch the sound check made it so you, you solve the problem of driving three or four hours each direction and, and you made it worth your while, right? Yeah, it kind of reminds me, I, I shouldn't be leading the interview already, but did you, no. did you come across um, the story of how I got to work for the St. Louis Cardinals? Yeah, that, that was one of my account, that was one of my four stories that I was going to ask you about. It's either this David Byrne one or the, the Cardinals. Uh, let's, let's start with the Cardinals one because I think that that'll lead really nicely into my second question for you. Um, so I came back from doing my junior year abroad in Europe, in England, 
And I came back and decided I wanted to work for a baseball team, a major league baseball team, except the Chicago Cubs, because I hate the Cubs more than any team of any sport, and I would never work for them. But I wanted to work for one of the other major league baseball teams. So I wrote letters to all of them, and I called, and I sent resumes, and I was trying to find connections into any clubs. and. Got a lot of rejections early, but then I started making a little bit of headway with San Francisco Giants, Baltimore Orioles, uh, St. Louis Cardinals. Also, I'd kept alive. And as it was getting down to it, I really wanted to. I really wanted to work there, and I saw the opportunity there as possibly the best one. So I finally just decided to get in my car and drive down to St. Louis, which was five hours from Madison, and. I drove there and parked immediately when I got there, I parked at the baseball stadium. I went to the front office desk and I asked if I could see Jeff Whaling, who was the head of PR. How'd you know Jeff Whaling was the head of PR? Oh, I just did my research. Uh, Did my research into all the organizations, found out who everybody was, addresses, phone numbers, whatnot. Did similar to the research you did. (laughs) did everything, Everything I could find. Um, and they said, well, who are you? Do you have an appointment? I said, no, I don't have an appointment, but I really am I'm seeking an internship here. I just drove five hours from Madison. I really want to work with the Cardinals, and I really want to talk to them about if, you know, how I could come in and help out during the summer. And then she said, well, let me see. And then she disappeared for a little bit. So I was just standing at the reception desk by myself. And then she came back out and said, he'll see you tomorrow at 10 o'clock. So I said, great. So I got a hotel uh, for the night and walked around St. Louis and just did whatever. And did you go buy a suit? I had a suit. So you showed up with a suit in a suit. Yeah. Okay. I can wear the same one because he didn't see me the first day. So, um, so I came back the next day, had the interview, and uh, they said yeah. And so they allowed me to do public relations internship with them for the summer, which was the perfect summer to do it because it was the 100th anniversary of the club. So I was one of the things I got to do was organize the 100th anniversary celebration. Um, which was pretty cool in its own right, but I met pretty much every historical, um, famous Hall of Fame St. Louis Cardinal player ever, including several who ended up playing then for the Milwaukee Brewers, including Bob Euchre, who was the voice of the Milwaukee Brewers, who was a hero of mine. So the whole summer was great, though. I mean, every every day at lunch, we went out and played baseball in the park, um, you know, in the Major League Park, and so it was it was a, uh, it was an absolute dream come true. And I knew at the time, and I said this to my dad at the time, what, how sad it is that uh, I just had the best job I'm ever going to have at 21 years old. So it's all going to just kind of be bad from here. So far I was right. I actually haven't had a job as cool as that. One. <laughs> you mean our current job isn't as cool as that? Well, that's pretty cool, but I'm not, you don't see me playing baseball during the lunch hour. So that's true. That's true. And I, I, I saw a photo, which I'm going to show you right now. Uh, so looks like you also would rub elbows with RoboCop. Uh, can you tell us what's going on in this photo right here and maybe describe it for the audience as well first? What, what is the photo? So it's a, it's a photo of RoboCop at an air show during the summer in San Francisco in uh, 1993, I think, when I was 12. <laughs> And uh, that's actually not true. The, uh, but it's a RoboCop working, just talking to a bunch of kids and people and adults and everyone taking pictures of them. And I was just standing there with them, you know, helping him out, basically, um, you know, helping, helping manage the appearance. But he was pretty much on his own, the guy who did it. But the actual, um, the actual 
context of all of it is that my first job out of college, I moved to San Francisco and I got a job doing public relations uh, for a company that did movies that had worked with movie studios. So Orion was one of the movie studios I worked with. And when RoboCop 2 came out, uh, they wanted to do promotion. They wanted to do, you know, and, and our whole mission, by the way, was not, it was not the traditional billboard paid marketing. It was all unpaid. They, we had no budget pretty much ever. And it was all about horse trading. It was, everything was about what could you make happen on your own tenacity, creativity, guts. They would give us things to trade. Um, so like that's whenever, what you mean by horse trading? Yeah. So like they, whenever any movie came out, they'd give us all the swag, water bottles, T-shirts, Frisbees, whatever, whatever was, whatever was appropriate for the movie. And in this case, and then movie tickets, because what they do with movies um, to build word of mouth, they always screen movies well before they come out. And so you may have come across like been at a library or a cafe or something, and they're offering free movie tickets for a screening of some movie that's going to come out in two weeks, three weeks, a month or something like that. The, the less known or the worse the movie is, the more tickets are available that much sooner because they want as many people to see it as possible and try yeah. and build some word of mouth. I mean, like a Marvel movie, you probably don't, they don't do any because there's no need. They know they're going to get There's already money. so much pent-up excitement for it. Exactly. So in this case, RoboCop 2 came out. They gave us a full RoboCop suit, like the costume, like a real one. Not, well, not like a real one like used in the movie, but a real one like movie quality. Yeah. Like Made of aluminum. Picture, he looked yeah. like RoboCop. It, it was solid. And uh, it came in a huge duffel bag. And they gave it to us and they said, do something with this, which is kind of what all, just like how creative can you be? Yeah. So what we came up with was... Um, we say did, we, you mean you and the other interns or the other employees? Well, uh, just me and, you know, bouncing ideas off of people there. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, it was ultimately my responsibility, but, yeah. um, but I, I think it would be wrong for me to take credit for it. Cause you're always talking to people just kind of get ideas. I was living in San Francisco at the time. So this was in San Francisco and in the Marina in San Francisco, there's a Safeway, which is a fairly famous Safeway, by the way, because uh, every year, one of the thing, well, I don't know if they do this anymore, but Playboy magazine used to uh, rank uh, like the top ten um, places to meet someone of the op to hook up, basically. Mm-hmm. And the Safeway Marina uh, was always one of the top ten. So, <laughs> a little trivia. Anyway, the uh, what we decided to do was to do a casting call to f- find someone to play RoboCop during all these public appearances, and we did air shows. Um, street fairs, um, whatnot. And so what we did was we had a casting call. We had just rows and rows of guys, like six feet tall, all walking around acting like robots. Um, And we, you know, met and talked to everybody and picked the best one. But the coolest thing was we got front page of the San Francisco Examiner. Because, of course, you know, it's public relations, so it's a press event. So anything that we can do to attract some interesting attention. So we got the newspapers to come out, and one of them gave us the front page for the story. And uh, and covered the fact that we were doing that, which was great publicity for RoboCop 2, which is what the whole thing was about. We found our guy who's in this picture. Um, and then we went out and just lined up as many appearances as possible. And I think the crowning achievement for that summer was um, we convinced the San Francisco 49ers to do a 
it wasn't a, I, you know, I forget the details because it was that long ago, but it was like a salute or tribute to the movie, the blockbuster movies of the summer or the blockbusters coming out that winter. Mm-hmm. I forget exactly what the timing even was. Um, and so it was one of the first games of the season. It was a beautiful night and we had RoboCop on the field walking around just doing his thing. Had the, you know, and I, I have a picture on my site of, you know, the RoboCop sign in the background because they had the, they put them up on the big billboard for us and we had that there and i think it was also the year jurassic park came out or something like that so there was a bunch of stuff on the field but um we definitely we definitely did our work there you know and again working with no budget uh we got a ton of publicity and they were really cool it's probably the best creative work hmm. we did that some the the, the the summer i was there that's really cool so so in the photo i you're you're wearing a shirt and it looks like you have some sort of a Marvel character on your shirt. Uh, maybe you could give us some background into you know, who that is on your shirt. And then if it is a Marvel character, if it's not, what is your relationship to Marvel? Well, in that case, um, very unusually, no, it wasn't a Marvel character. It was RoboCop. Okay. Because, um, uh, you know, I was, I was representing. <laughs> um, but no, that's one of the only pictures you'll find of me probably not wearing a Marvel shirt of some sort. And my relationship to Marvel is that when I was six years old, I used to go with my dad every Saturday. My, every Saturday, my dad would go to the grocery store, get a dozen donuts for the weekend, pick up whatever else. And I would just mill around the pharmacy, uh, Woodside Pharmacy next door or walk around in the, in the, in the grocery store. And so, of course... I was attracted to the most colorful things because I was six. Um, and the most colorful things in the store were comic books. So um, I asked if I get a couple. And so I got some. And so every week I would start getting comics. And they were all, almost always Marvel comics. They were really... Um, so elect- you probably don't even know what Electric Company is, do you? Electric Company? No. The Electric Company and Sesame Street were on back-to-back. Uh, both kids programming. Electric Company was was like Rita Moreno, Morgan Freeman both came from, well, Rita Moreno didn't come from Electric Company, but she was associated with it. But Morgan Freeman came from Electric Company. As in that's where he got his start? Yes, I believe that's where he got his start. Um, he was Easy Reader, um, which I could actually play for you the song if you want. <laughs> Is that a pun on Easy Rider? Uh, God, probably was, yes. I never even thought of it. Um, yeah, and... Uh, Anyway, one of the things they did was uh, the electric company worked with Marvel, and so they had Spidey Super Stories, which was Spider-Man was always had a segment of Electric Company, which is why I was so drawn to it because it was really cool if you could see Spider-Man. Um, but sp- so Marvel then in turn made Spidey Super Stories, which was a young children's version of Spider-Man comic. So that's really where I learned to read, um, not exclusively, but that got me into reading. So I was mm-hmm. reading all the time, and so that's where. Um, that's where I, that's where I learned to read and we'd get them every week. And so I realized that I was into it. And I remember going to the Polaris comics and 45th, uh, and center street in Milwaukee was the first comic shop I ever went to. And it was like a magical land, Hmm. um, where they just had like boxes and boxes of comics and I could get older ones that I wasn't around for when they came out. And, I kind of realized at that point I was a collector, although I wasn't doing it to collect them. I just loved the stories. And so I was well-versed in Marvel, collecting Avengers, Fantastic Four, um, Spider-Man, all the spinoffs of all these things. Uh, The only one I really wasn't into was X-Men until later. And then 
Which which of those do you have the most comic books of? Oh, Spider Man. I had at one point I had every Spider Man appearance in any Marvel comic ever, including Amazing Fantasy fifteen and number one. In addition to the exclusive Spider Man comic books that were right, the Amazing yeah, Spider Man. That's what I'm saying. I had oh. every every Spider Man comic ever. Um, you have number one. Yeah. I remember back in 2002, it was on the news for some reason. They said the the Spider-Man number one is worth at this point $16,500. And I was like, oh, man, I'd kill for that. Oh, no, it's worth much more than that. A mint condition oh, one is worth way more than that. That was 2001. Yeah. Yeah. Mine was a... Mine wasn't worth that much. I mean, my condition, the conditions of mine weren't that great or I could have never afforded them in the first place. I just got them because I wanted to have a copy. So I like didn't get very great quality. But I sold like I think the first 20, one through 20 to pay the mortgage of this house. Oh my God. Yeah. To pay the whole mortgage? Uh, and then, no, I got a little, there was also some other money, but that helped a lot. Wow. Okay. Um, so I don't have them anymore, sadly. But uh, but yeah, Spider Man was, yeah. was the one I cared the most about and collected the most. And yeah. uh, but Marvel was important to me. Spider Man in particular was important to me, and I think it. You know, you never know what's innate in your personality, but I think my sense of justice, which sometimes is my worst enemy, <laughs> uh, comes a lot from that. I just really believe in right and wrong and doing the right thing and and people doing the right thing. Doesn't every comic book hero have a deep sense of justice, though? Uh I don't know. Not necessarily. I mean, one of the things no. that makes Marvel great, you know, and I, I gravitated toward Marvel versus DC early on is because Marvel was always known for, and they did such a great job of making flawed characters as their heroes. So they always had people with real personalities and real problems and real tough decisions and, you know, flaws, character flaws. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was much more real than like Superman. It's like, what's the point? I mean, the first, I remember the first time I ever saw Superman. It's like, okay, what are you supposed to do to beat this guy? It's like, what's the point? I mean, yeah, perfect. Everything's That's going it. his way, except right. he lived in a fictional city, so that would cause one to question their own existential existence. I guess. Right, his hair is always perfect. It's like, <laughs> but you there's couldn't nothing wrong with you. Had glasses on. That's right. <laughs> somehow, somehow, it, so, not to go on a tangent, but I don't know if you ever saw the the George Clooney Batman movies. But they were done in this kind of, uh, I don't yeah. know, slapstick humor, vaudeville a little bit, right? And then uh, five years later, when they had the the dark, it wasn't the Dark Knight. It was Batman Begins, the Christopher Nolan one that came out, and uh, people loved that one, right? Totally different tone. They went. There's this interview you can go on YouTube and watch us with the director of those those Batman movies from whatever, 1995 to 2001. And they were like, what were you thinking? He's like, I'm so sorry. He's apologetic. He's like, I don't know what I was thinking to make it slapstick humor because I think that was maybe a fit the zeitgeist of the time, right? For him to make it in that tone. Yeah. And it was so different than the zeitgeist of the 2004, what was developing then. Well, and it's not just it's not just about what was happening in society when they made those movies, but there's also I don't know if it was Frank Miller who started this, but Frank Miller definitely started this with Daredevil, which is the Marvel kind of one of the Marvel. Uh, I don't know if it's the Marvel equivalent of Batman, but you know they're both regular guys, vigilantes, dark side, and whatnot. Um, 
He also they, made Sin they, City. They usually say Iron Man. Yeah, it was, yes, he did do Sin City. They right. usually say Iron Man is more of Marvel's um, Batman just because mm. he's also self-made and it's all technology and whatnot. But either way. Um, the uh, But he did a run on Batman that um, that was very dark and gritty. And that was the tone for Christopher Nolan's Batman stuff afterwards. And so... It really depends. I mean, if you pulled eras out of the comics and did movies on these superheroes, you would go anywhere from vaudeville slapstick, you know, like Batman in the '60s with uh, that was on TV. You know, it was very much like that. In fact, it was it was very campy, very comedy like. Yeah. Um, but you can depends on which run of the comic you take. You can make mm. any version of it, and it can have a lot of different tones. Which is why fans just argue about what they should have done. Yeah. Yeah. To not argue about it too much, but but I heard Superman is based on the the, the plight and the triumph of uh, Jewish subculture. Have you ever heard this? Uh, yeah. There's a great, um, great book, Cavalier and Clay, I believe it's called. Are you familiar with it? I, I, I think I've heard of it. Um, have you Have you read it? I did read it, and uh, it was a while ago, so I don't even think I could tell you much about the story other than that them their Jewish heritage and and their writing comic books, their fascination with comic books was a big part of it, and that they explored that aspect of it a fair amount. I'm, I just don't remember all the detail of it, but it's a good book. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes for us. So I, I want to shift gears a little bit, and I, I got to review a lot of the work that you've done in your portfolio. I, I have your Verizon campaign that you did, your madison.com, Seas Candy, Jerry's Hot Picks. Uh, yeah, you, you have experience across so many different industries, almost like you're an ad agency of one. And I, that's an exaggeration. I know it's never just one person doing it. I'm hoping you can tell us about the madison.com campaign and uh, let's let's go down that wormhole a little bit because that th- that one caught my eye the most. Oh, it's because it's probably the best work we ever did, creatively, brand wise. Um, Madison.com campaign was the probably the greatest blend of brand and creative and tone and execution um, of anything I've ever done, probably. And uh, we had a lot of great work done by uh, Matt Everson, who was the designer on that, who led a lot of aspects of that, and Steve Barlament, who was the writer. Um, Can you describe the campaign? And, and maybe the, the, the visuals are the most important element of it. So, so if you can, describe that for us. Sure. Absolutely. I can describe it in great detail. So, uh, so Madison.com, um, <laughs> it's really a, it's a great story, and I'm afraid I forget the guy's name at the moment but if i sat here too long which probably wouldn't really be good listening um i could think of the person who did this but when i worked at um madison newspapers in madison wisconsin uh i got there in 1997 and it took almost like a year before not quite a year but we heard that some guy in their it department when you gotta keep in mind i was working when the internet became the internet so I I was I I'm pre I have a I have a BI and then an a you know and an AI after inter, before internet <laughs> and uh, so this guy when all the internet domain names were 
becoming available. He went out and just bought Madison.com for the hell of it. Just the, the IT I did without any plan, without any real reason why he just thought we should have this. So the newspaper owned Madison.com, which was brilliant. It's and, a great name. Yeah. And they were running a website that was horrible. It's just horrible. I saw the photo. Yeah. Wayback machine. It was called, they called it most on Madison. So it was referred to as mom internally. That's what everybody called it, it was mom. And it was painful and it was directionless and they didn't know to be fair. And this is important to keep in mind, everything internet, anytime anyone was doing anything on the internet, it was new ish. Um, so that they, that they were doing a horrible job is kind of me looking back at 2020 hindsight, you know, at the time, who knows what you were supposed to do with the internet. It was new to everybody. Um, but it was horrible. <laughs> we even thought so at the time. So, but you know, I was also younger then, so that was probably just a youthful distaste for my elders and thinking that they didn't know what they were doing. So, um, so we we uh, we were watching that, and at the time, I was the marketing director for all the newspapers. So I did Wisconsin State Journal, the Capital Times, um, most on Madison or Madison dot com was not on their radar. It was not a revenue generator. It was not anything. It had no traffic. It was nothing. So it wasn't like it was a high priority for anybody. But as things went on and we got into the year 2000, 2001, and we were moving along, um, people could start to see that the internet was really something. <laughs> we're getting on the ground floor of this internet thing. So we, uh, so we figured out what we needed to do with it. And so me and Matt and Steve, really, the marketing department, and this is kind of for context purposes, the marketing department I believed, look, marketing departments are either driven or they're driving. And I believe a marketing department should be driving, which means that the marketing department should understand what is the brand, what is the key messaging, what do we want to be to our consumers? What do we mean to our consumers? If we disappear tomorrow... They're shaping the narrative. Exactly. If we disappear tomorrow, <clears throat> what would consumers miss? And so we... You know, marketing should be driving what should be the initiatives, what should be the strategies, what should be the brand, what should be our approach, what should our materials look like, what should every every interaction look like, whether you call customer service or you meet someone from the company at a party and they say, I work there, and they say, what do you do? And they tell you, they should. we should all be telling the same story. Mm -hmm. So we went through, it, Madison.com didn't really have a brand. It didn't really have an identity of any sort. So, and, so, so, so you feel like at that point, uh, sorry to interrupt, but th that marketing was not driving. Well, that's that's the other thing. So you, you can know I was tr I was driving. I was trying very hard to be driving in that environment. But marketing yeah. can also be driven. It can also be just told what to do. <clears throat> and then when marketing is driven, it's usually being led by people who don't understand what marketing does, and they think you're the people that make things look pretty. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, kind of. You're going to take this order, and you're going to get it done. All right, thanks for doing that. Right, exactly. Um, and there's no strategy, and it's all haphazard, and it's all tunnel visioned on the one initiative you're working on at that time, without a holistic perspective of everything else in the company and how it all really interrelates. I can relate to that. So we went through a brand development exercise, and that's you know I led that with Matt and Steve, and we went through what is Madison.com, what does it represent, how does it fit into our family of products, what what role does it play, and there was a lot of information and detail, and there's a lot of work done on that, and so I'll summarize it heavily. But basically, we had Madison.com, the domain name. That didn't really necessarily fit 
with Wisconsin State Journal, which was the newspaper for much of Wisconsin, and or the Capital Times, which was the newspaper for Dane County, which was so, so Dane. Picture a square. That's Dane County. In the very center of that square is Madison. That is the capital of Wisconsin, and it's and it sits in the middle of Dane County and sits in the lower part of Wisconsin. Um, Dane County was the Capital Times audience. So it was a little bit more closely regional. Uh, so we had that, but then there's Madison.com. And you realize when, just by the domain name Madison.com, you know that who would, if you're going to Madison.com, what would you expect to find? Well, you'd expect to find anything about Madison. Yeah. City of Madison. So it wasn't just going to be a news site or an informational site. It was going to be everything Madison. And so that's what we decided to make it. And again, I'm shortening this story a lot, but this is, what we really decided to be was Madison.com was going to be the champion for the city. We were going to be its biggest cheerleader, its biggest fan. We were going to push the envelope. We were going to be pushing, you know, doing everything we could to support the city and make people feel good about living there and make it a better place to be and do everything we could. The, so the, the cultural expression of it, maybe. Yeah. So it was, it was the whole thing was about that. And so, I do know, you know, Matt, Matt came up with this aspect of it, which was how to visually portray that. And we decided that propaganda was going to be the best way to do it because propaganda, if you look at the history of propaganda, which we did, uh, went through like a lot of world war two propaganda, a lot of just, especially communist propaganda. There's so much better <laughs> than <laughs> at it, which I guess you have to be, um, you know, because when you're lying to all your citizens, propaganda is like the way to go. So we, uh, and propaganda, like the best propaganda had like strong images and was really a rally cry, like bold lines united. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's yeah. the way the design went. And so what we, what we ended up doing and, you know, working on creative and working with good, good designers, especially look, I've, I've hired a lot of designers in my life. And the one criteria that I, I seek from them all is that they, they have a reason for everything they do. I don't like to work with designers who do things because it's cool looking or it's creative or clever. I like to work with designers who have a strategy behind their design and understand the brand and understand the goals and what we're really trying to do and take a holistic long-term look of what we're building. So it's not like I made this one really cool ad and then you run it. It's like, all right, now what do we do? You know, I want to be able to work within a family of materials where we always look the same and the message is always reinforced and it's, I'm not looking for the most clever campaign. I'm looking for the most effective campaign. I'm trying to work in goals. And so in this case, um, the propaganda angle is perfect. You know, and by the way, there's another piece to this, which if you want to get into it, you let me know, but I'm not going to without you saying so. But there's also the content of Madison.com because we also built the site. And so it was two-pronged. I'm just talking about the marketing of it, but we also yeah. built the site, which was, I'll tell you in short, it's heavy lifting because the two newsrooms were filled with lifelong newspaper people who were confident the internet was going to cannibalize them and make them irrelevant and make the newspapers go out of business. So they wanted to push over to the side. And so they did not want to give any content hmm. to, to the website. So it was like pulling teeth. Fortunately, we had publishers who believed in it. And so we were able to get more and more content for the site. Hey, sexy ladies and gentlemen, that was part one to our two-part conversation with our guest. Arguably, the second half is actually better than the first, so I suggest you go and listen to that. 
Also, before you go, I want to ask you for one small favor. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please help grow the show with me by either one, reviewing on Apple Podcasts, or two, subscribing to the show. To give you a little background to why those two, it's because both have a material effect in growing the ranking of the show in podcast categories through the iTunes podcast ranking system, similar to how Google search ranks and organizes top sites for a specific search. To sweeten the deal, we're going to do something a little special. If you review the show on Apple Podcasts, I'm going to enter you into a $50 Amazon gift card raffle, which we're going to announce the winner of every other Thursday. It's simple. Review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's that little purple podcast app on your phone. Scroll to the bottom of the show and hit add review. 10 words, 10 seconds, very easy. You'll be entered into a $50 Amazon gift card raffle, which we're going to announce the winner of every other Thursday. It's free money, y'all. You got to love that. If you wouldn't mind doing that, that would be freaking amazing. Thank you. Take care and good night.